1: and a secret proceedings.
0: Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military industrial complex, UFOs. Paranormal phenomena Please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is someone I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time. He's a member of academia, but he's also an open-minded scholar who's willing to revise his views in the light of new evidence. Tonight's special guest is Professor Robert Shock. We'll discuss Easter Island, the Great Sphinx, Gobekli Tepe, ancient cataclysms, which may repeat in certain intervals, like clockwork and forgotten civilizations. This will be a fascinating interview. As a matter of disclosure, we began with Skype, but the sound became too choppy, so we switched to regular landline. Not even a couple of minutes after, Dr. Shock's neighborhood lost power aren't you getting tired of all these outages every time we conduct some of our interviews you will hear his wife say that was a solar flare which is what I was planning to discuss with him I was going to remove that portion when the lights went out but decided to leave it for entertainment purposes Dr. Robert Shock is coming up next and don't forget to buy MMS especially at this time of the year Don't get caught off guard. And many of you have written asking if I'm planning to have the fourth season of our USB drive available during the holidays. The problem in the past is that our seasons end at the end of the year. However, I have something new so that you can still give it during the holidays or purchase it for yourself. I will make it available right now. And in the envelope, there will be a card with a link that will allow the recipient if he or she is not a... Subscriber to download any remaining shows for the year. That way, say you buy it this week, you'll be able to download the remaining shows and have them all fit in your USB drive. You can also give the gift of truth by purchasing a subscription for three, six, nine months, or one or two years. Go to the Veritas store for more information. And the 2012 Inside Veritas special is coming up soon. Guess on what date? Friday, December 21st, 2012. So go to the member section and click on the inside Veritas link so you can submit your question in writing. Or if you have a decent microphone, you can record it and send the audio file to us. I will play it on the air. Don't delay. The deadline is Sunday, December the 16th, 2012. And do get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower. There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, let's go to tonight's interview.
1: This is Walter Cruttenden, and you are listening to Veritas.
0: Robert Shock has a PhD in geology and geophysics, from Yale University and has been working in Egypt focusing on the Great Sphinx and Great Pyramid since 1990. He is a tenured full-time faculty member of the College of General Studies of Boston University, where he has taught a variety of science courses since 1984. Based on his geological studies, Professor Schock has determined that the Sphinx's origins go back to pre-dynastic times, thousands of years older than previously thought. In recent years, Dr. Schock has expanded his research to encompass pyramids and associated structures around the world. He is the author of many books, including the latest, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. And to learn more about Professor Robert Shock and his work, visit his website at robertschock.com com, which is also linked on ours. And directly from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm honored, privileged to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Professor Robert Schock. Hello, Professor, how are you?
1: Very good, thank you. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Well, I met you and your lovely wife, Katie, in October of 2011. I was at the uh, CPAC with uh, Walter Cruttenden in in Sedona. And I have to say, when I watched your your presentation, I was very impressed, but also I thought, Why didn't I have a professor as open minded as you are? What makes you different, professor, between you and the regular professors that are your peers?
1: Well, uh, maybe you just summarized it. I would say, (laughs) my
0: goodness.
1: But I think more than that, so many people in academia and so many people in life generally, they have impressed upon them at a very early age a certain worldview, a certain paradigm. And it's very hard for people to break with the paradigm that they um, feel comfortable with, that they grew up with, whether it's growing up academically, whether it's growing up in life more generally. And uh, I, I believe that most people don't realize how strong the paradigms, the worldviews, the outlooks people have and that they carry with them at a very deep, i call it sort of subconscious or very deep level, how much that affects um, their lives, their research, their outlook. So, and this is actually something I talk about in Forgotten Civilization to a certain extent, how important paradigms are and how I would say detrimental they are in some cases to really discovering the true nature of reality, the truth behind, for instance, ancient civilizations, uh, and somehow I, at least I tried to um, get away from standard paradigms and question them.
0: Last week I was having dinner with Robert Bouval and uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette on the same table, and uh, we were discussing your work, and you, by the way, mentioned them on on this uh, latest book as well. But when I watched that presentation about Easter Island, the the Moai, which are the gigantic stone heads, and the Rongorongo script, I, I had to ask you, because I've never seen pictures where you actually see the bodies uncovered, and that's when I said I need to have Professor Shock here. When did the uncovering of the bodies happen?
1: Oh, for, for the Moai?
0: Yes, for the Moai.
1: Well, actually, some of the Moai still stand on Ahoos, and you can see the bodies on them. The other ones, the ones that you're thinking of, and I just got back from Easter Island, the ones you're thinking of, I believe, are the Moai around the quarry area, around the crater where they were carved. And many of those are covered in sediment up to their necks, up to their chins. And the first ones, people don't seem to realize that this, the uh, some of those moai were excavated in the early 20th century. Uh, Catherine Rutledge, who was working at Easter Island about a hundred years ago, just almost a hundred years ago, she did exploration there. She excavated. A moai that had been buried up to his chin. And she revealed, as subsequent excavations have revealed, that these moai, whenever they're excavated, they have bodies, but they don't have legs. So they have essentially torsos, they have the arms, and they go down to essentially just below the navel area, the belt area. And they don't seem to have legs, with one exception. So let me mention two things. One, Thor Heyerdahl. The famous Thor Heyerdahl also worked in Easter Island in the middle 20th century. He excavated a freestanding Moai, excavated um, maybe five meters or so of sediment from it, found that there was a full torso, but again, no legs. He also excavated a very strange Moai that is different from all the others, which has legs, but it's kneeling. It's a kneeling moai, very South American looking, and is almost unique. Fragments of similar moai have been found, small moai, that may be of the same style, kneeling. But other than the kneeling moai, they're just torsos, heads, and arms, and belts.
0: Were the bodies buried on purpose, or did they get buried with the passing of time, wind, and sand?
1: Everyone that I've seen and been able to study was buried uh, with time, as you say. There's no indication to me that they were buried purposefully. I want to mention that in just the last couple of years, a couple more moai have been excavated. Same situation. They found that they have torsos, they have belts, they have arms, but no legs. And these latest excavations have confirmed that these moai apparently were erected vertically, you know, standing up, and they were buried by the elements by, uh, you know, sediment filling up slowly, gradually around them, which has major implications from a geological point of view. As far as I'm concerned, you don't get sediment like that building up slowly and gradually over numerous meters, you know, five meters, 16 feet or more. That doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen over a short period of time. That takes centuries and millennia, typically, to build up that type of sediment. Some people have suggested that perhaps they dug holes and stuck them in the holes. If that were the case, you would be able to see that the way the stratigraphy would fall. You would be able to see that they had dug a hole and put it in it. So that seems not to be the case. Other people have suggested that maybe these Moai were covered with sediment very quickly, even catastrophically from a tsunami or from landslides, that type of thing. But that doesn't work either. Geologically, you would be able to tell that the sediment came from a catastrophic event like that. And also, if you think about logically, these tall vertical Moai, at least some of them, are, if not some of them, probably all of them, if there had been landslides and tsunamis that accounted for it, they would have been knocked down. And a number of them still stand vertically.
0: And where, when were these statues made, made and how? Do Have you come to any conclusions on that?
1: Uh, that's one of the big questions. And that ties in with what we were just talking about. If some of these statues were naturally buried in sediment over a prolonged period of time, the amount of sediment, again, say four to six meters, somewhere in that range, that is not insignificant. And that would take a very long time geologically. I'm thinking in terms of thousands of years. I suggest fairly, you know, radically, if you would, but I think we have evidence for it, that there is the possibility that Easter Island and inhabitation of Easter Island goes back thousands and thousands of years, perhaps even to the end of the last ice age, which dates to about 9,000 to 10,000 years ago. And we have other evidence of sophisticated culture at the end of the last ice age. And this ties in with my whole theory about what ended the last ice age. And you mentioned the Rongo Rongo, how that would tie in. But And we can get to that. But as far as the moai are concerned, the very fact that some of them are covered with sediment that seems to have collected slowly indicates great age. There's other aspects to the moai, too. There seem to be different styles of moai. There are different materials that the moai are carved from. I believe that the earliest moai, the oldest moai, are actually carved from basalt. Well, we have some basalt moai. They're quite rare. And they, I believe, for various reasons, are the earliest known moai. These moai carved from basalt may have actually come from quarries that are now on the coast of Easter Island, but have been inundated, have been covered with water, covered by rising sea levels since the end of the last ice age. And if that's the case, that these moai were... Carved from quarries that are now underwater again that would indicate That they're of great antiquity that they would date back to Before sea level rises at the end of the last ice age Also the moai that have been found And perhaps the most famous one is at the british museum (coughs) Excuse me is in the british museum It was found In a context where it was clearly being reused on Easter Island, another Moai that's made out of basalt was uh, found under uh, other Moai, was found under what's known as an Ahu, a platform where other Moai are standing. It was found at a very deep stratigraphic level. Again, this would indicate great antiquity. There's another basalt Moai that has been reused, reincorporated, into one of the platforms where other moai later moai are sitting on top of it so i i think we can start to figure out which are the earlier moai which are the later moai the later moai what i consider the later moai are not carved out of the salt they're carved out of a softer volcanic rock basically a volcanic tuff, is what i would call a tufta or tough stone and it's easier to work it's softer, essentially. It erodes more quickly, and what I see them doing, among other things, is trending toward making bigger mollies, but out of softer, more easily worked rock as time progressed. So I think we can figure out stratigraphy, we can figure out chronology for the moai, but this is going to take more work.
0: Of course, and when I look at a map, in an island, that is so far from the nearest uh, piece of land, What what is it, 2,000 kilometers. How did the builders obtain the knowledge? Who were they in contact with, in your opinion?
1: Oh, well, that's a very good question, too. So uh, to put the traditional view forward, I'll put it that way, the traditional view is that Easter Island, Easter island was colonized by essentially Polynesians from the west, from the west of the island. You know, that is uh, the furthest most point, the easternmost point of essentially Polynesia. So they were migrating from the west toward the east. They got as far as Easter Island and then colonized Easter Island. And the conventional archaeologists tend to say this happened no later than maybe 1500 years ago. I don't think that's the case at all. As we were talking about the Moai, I believe that the Moai go back earlier, at least some of the Moai. I think that the people go back earlier. When you listen and read the legends of Easter Island, the, the indigenous legends, indigenous mythology, and also I think when you look at stylistic aspects of Easter Island architecture and carvings, that type of thing. What you find is that there's more than one connection to Easter Island. I think there are Polynesian connections to the West and there's also South American connections to the East. And people like Thor Heyerdahl suggested that perhaps South Americans also got to Easter Island and colonized Easter Island, as well as potentially Polynesians. And you, I believe you find cultural attributes. That would indicate connections on both sides, as I said, South America and Polynesia. I speculate, though, that in some cases it may not be people coming to Easter Island, but Easter Island may have been the origin of certain, of cultural traits, certain innovations. So it it could work both ways, especially at the end of the last Ice Age, if Easter Island were colonized, it would have been larger, could have been more important strategically. It's yes, certainly important strategically if you think about people traveling throughout the Pacific. So these are still a questions. But I think it does suggest there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, that Easter Island was much more important in very ancient times than most people believe.
0: When you say the island was bigger, I can only think of uh, you know the speculation of, of Atlantis and Lemuria and in I just think, what is the purpose of of these monoliths? Were they, or are they telling us something? Are they what? Are they telling us something?
1: Yeah, I think they're telling us something. Let me comment on the concept of bigger. What I'm referring to specifically geologically is when you had lower sea levels, uh, you would have had more land exposed. Of course. Yeah, and so it could have been bigger physically, could have been more important. There are an incredible number of these monoliths, these moai on the island. The vast majority uh, face inward. The vast majority on the coast, I should say, they ring the coast and they face inward. Some of them in the uh, volcanic crater and quarry, they face both ways, both toward the sea and also inward. But many face inward. And the Easter Islanders actually talk about one of their legends talks about the Moai looking or gazing up toward the skies. And when you look at a number of Moai, in my opinion, they do seem to be looking up toward the sky. So there is some suggestion that they have some kind of astronomical slash astrological significance. I think that that's very much the case. Other traditions, and they're not mutually exclusive, other traditions include the concept that the Moai represent chieftains, they represent clans, they represent kings, you know, important personages, and that they have to do with the ancestor cult. It's known that in the 18th and 19th centuries, people did bury their deceased, their dead, uh, near the Moai, near the Ahu's, platforms on which some of the Moai sit, but that could be uh, a later innovation, that could be a later um, uh, practice. That doesn't mean that's initially what the Moai represented. I I tend to believe that the Moai actually had something to do with the sky, and they had to do with essentially catastrophic events in the sky uh, a very long time ago, essentially at the end of the last ice age.
0: Now, why do you say this? Is it because something has been found in the, the and we'll get into the Rongo, Rongo script, which, is, uh, which are glyphs inscribed on, on pieces of wood. Is there a relation between what you're saying and the Rongo, Rongo script?
1: Yes, I believe so, because I think that all this is part of a more unified whole, more unified concept. So with any cultural traits, you can have things that begin one way that can be then um, used for multiple purposes. Uh, So, you know, it's not as it's not as simple as something is either this or that in many cultural complexes. But, you know, it's hard to know exactly where to start with this. You have three different sets of concepts or cultural complexes on Easter Island that many people are aware of. One is the Moai. We've been talking about these huge statues, these huge torsos. As I mentioned They do seem to be looking up toward the sky. There are legends that they look up toward the sky. There's a legend collected in the 1960s by anthropologists about the Moai looking up toward the sky and also that essentially the sky fell down and, you know, the local king takes credit for having brought the sky, put the sky back up, which doesn't mean he did. (laughs) Of course, politicians take credit for all kinds of (laughs) things. Yeah, right? right. You know, that there were events in the sky, that there were problems in the sky. I believe, to cut to the chase, and I talked about this in Forgotten Civilization, I believe that we have lots of evidence, geological evidence, not just legends and myths and indigenous um, statements, but we have lots of good, solid geological evidence that there was a major solar outburst, or actually a series of solar outbursts at the end of the last ice age that would have created havoc in the skies, would have created um, cataclysmic conditions on the surface of the Earth. And I believe that the Moai are part of a complex that sort of memorializes this and in part warns us against this. Warns us against, um, you know, that this happen in the future. Other things that we have on Easter Island that tie in with that are we have these weird stone houses. They sort of look like fallout shelters or bunkers. and they build Professor, these-
0: Professor, I don't mean to interrupt you. I think it, it would be better if we switch to telephone. You're cutting off a lot. Do you mind if we switch to telephone? No, no, that's fine.
1: I'm worried about whether this would work or not. Yeah, so what we have... We have a number of different—I'll call it—cultural complexes. Oh gosh! Hold on. Can you hold in two seconds? Sure. Yeah, we just lost power here. Oh. Yeah. Um. Hold on. Um. Uh. Uh. The phone is obviously still working. Hold. Can you hold in two seconds? I'm sorry.
0: No. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Let
1: me look. Yeah. Let me look outside the window. I want to see if there's power in other buildings. Okay. Hold on.
0: Sure. Solar flare, I think. Now that's that's Katie, Professor Shuck's, uh wife speaking on the back in the background. Now isn't that interesting? Did you just hear what she said? First of all, we just disconnected. Let me just make a commentary while while he's uh, figuring things out in the background. But we had to disconnect because the the Skype. Hello.
1: Yeah, it looks like we we just lost power. We're looking outside, and all the buildings are dark.
0: I'm just making a commentary here, Professor, because we we got disconnected with Skype, and I yeah. guess that was that was uh, lucky of our of us because we would have gotten disconnected again once you lost your computer, correct? Oh yeah,
1: I've, yeah, the computer just went down. I mean, we've lost uh, all everything's lost power. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess I guess the phone is still working. Um, yeah, this is very strange.
0: The phone is still working, and I was making commentary in the background referring to what uh, your wife Katie was saying, that solar flare, because as you know, I've had several conversations with Dr. Paul Laviolette where yeah, he discusses yeah. this, this is very subject, and even today I get a message from him stating that a Carrington event is, is probably happening very soon. Exactly. And your book is, is about this, so why do you think you lost power?
1: I don't know because I'm sitting here in the dark, and I don't know. But it's not impossible that, uh, th- yeah, this is. Uh, uh, it's not impossible that solar activity knocked something out here.
0: Well, I have to say, and in, in, uh, this is perhaps not part of the the interview, but at our forum, many of our members are reporting that in the past two or three days, mm-hmm. they they are not able to sleep. And this is a lot of people telling me the same thing. They cannot sleep. It's almost as if they're they're full of energy. So I don't know if there's a correlation between these
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually Katie and I have been talking about that too. It seems to be affecting people and uh yeah, yeah, I mean there's definitely mood changes and, and affects sleep patterns, that type of thing. I'm actually looking out the window now and I don't see I don't see any lights on. Oh, I see something in the far distance maybe. But it looks like things are pretty blacked out.
0: Well, we're in the west, we're in the uh, southwest, and we have power. So I hope it's yeah, not yeah. a uh, that that new TV series uh, Revolution. Sometimes I wonder if Hollywood.
1: I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. I have I, my students have told me about it. They said I should see it because because it's directly applicable.
0: Exactly. And I wonder if Hollywood just uh, injects some predictive programming into the psyche of the population in preparation for things to come. Do you think that's yeah. a possibility?
1: I think that's a definite possibility because I've also noticed, for instance, we'll watch, we don't watch much television, but we'll watch, uh, Was it, Scott Pelley, uh, you know, the national news periodically. No, yeah. and it's amazing how many times, as his last story, or sometimes not even his last story, he'll be talking about the sun and another major solar flare and whatnot. I mean, this never made national news before. You know, again, as if they're preparing people.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, let, yeah. let's get back. Let's get back to the uh, to Easter Island, and then you can comment as you see things out your window. But uh, you know, many people wonder. Okay.
1: So, so we'll pick up with the interview or so.
0: Oh of course I mean we're we're still recording. We're still definitely recording.
1: Oh, we're recording right now. Okay. You can use cut some of this, uh put some of this in or whatever, yeah. It's very Absolutely. interesting. I mean again, you know, I don't know what's causing this blackout at the moment. All I know is we lost power and it looks like everything uh around us lost power.
0: And you're not uh you're not close to the Hurricane Sandy affected area, so that shouldn't be the no, issue, right?
1: No, no, and that's that's long past in a sense. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if it's just a fluke thing or if it has something to do. Well, I mean, unfortunately or fort- whatever, we won't say fortunate or unfortunately. Uh, in some cases, there have been power losses, and I know at least around here, they just don't explain them. So, you know, I remember not that long ago, a big transformer went out and knocked out power for a chunk of Boston, and there was never any explanation as to what happened.
0: I have to confess to you, in the past uh, few months, we've gotten disconnected just as we were about to start the show and the lights come back after. And speaking of Dr. Paul Laviolette, our very first interview, we we got disconnected over 25 times discussing very sensitive topics. So that's very strange wow. that you lost power on your side because it usually happens. But many people wonder, the name Easter Island, where's that come from? Easter Island was discovered by the Dutch explorer
1: Sam... Led by Jacob Roggeveen, uh, one of the uh, 18th-century Dutch explorers, and they spotted Easter Island. Excuse me. They spotted Easter Island on. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Let me start over. They spotted Easter Island on Easter Sunday in 1722. So that's why it's called Easter Island. And Easter Island was not known to Europeans. Until 1722. So from many perspectives, it was isolated uh, from the rest of the world for a major period of time, apparently, at least since, you know, going back to whenever it was colonized or whenever it last had contact with the outside world. So sort of a microcosm unto itself. Sometimes Easter on is referred to as the remote most remote inhabited spot on Earth, and I think that is a very good description of it because it's very far away from any other inhabited areas. But as we were discussing before, there is the possibility certainly that it had contact in very ancient times with other parts of the world may have been more important in that respect than it was in the 18th century when it was first discovered. A lot of people have suggested that was in a Essentially, a depauperate condition by the time it was discovered in 1722, and like many places that uh, were discovered by the Europeans, and not to sound the wrong way, but once it was discovered by the Europeans, uh, things went downhill very quickly for the native inhabitants of Easter
0: Island. Well, that seems the- that seems to be the case with uh, with uh, ever since Columbus came around.
1: Yes exactly same same type of scenarios t- same type of situation where uh, you know it's discovered quote unquote discovered by Europeans and things go down very downhill very quickly the Europeans inadvertently bring disease they purposefully essentially you know take what they can as far as wealth and riches in the case of Easter Island not unlike other areas, they took slaves, they killed a number of the inhabitants uh warfare ensued on the island. you know different clans, different tribes you know, started taking out their frustrations on each other is the way I would say it, you know of course, it was really from the Europeans uh being there. And the moai, the moai that we were talking about, these huge heads and torsos, a number of them were standing upright along the coast on the Ahus, on the platforms, when the Europeans discovered Easter Island in the 18th century. By the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, essentially all the moai on the Ahus had been knocked over, had been knocked down. So I've looked at, for instance, photographs from the 1940s. There's a nice set of photographs that was shared with me by an Easter Island native from the 1940s. And you look at that, and all these Moai have been totally knocked down. And what seems to have been the case is that the tribes sort of, you know, the tribes got on each other's nerves, should we say. They started fighting. The social situation was deteriorating. And they start knocking down each other's moai. So it's a very sad situation. When you go to Easter Island now and look at the moai on the Ahus, they've all been re-erected. And that actually creates problems, too, as far as sometimes people say, well, what is the exact orientations? Mm -hmm. Where exactly are they pointing? And in many cases, we don't know precisely down to the degree because they were knocked down and then they were re-erected, not always totally accurately.
0: Is there a way to know which ones were re erected?
1: Oh well effect yes, yes. Effectively all the ones along the coastline were re erected. Uh, I don't know of any along the coast of Easter Island that was not 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 knocked down, I'm trying to say. Sure. All of them were knocked down, all of them were re erected in the twenty or twenty, you know, essentially twentieth century, late twentieth century. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these cases of terrible destruction to
0: the island. And you also visited the quarry, the quarries uh, from which the Moai were, were carried. How much is the average uh, Moai weigh, and how do you think they were moved
1: yeah, okay, so the quarry is a different situation because there are moai around the quarry that were never knocked down. As we discussed before, a lot of them were buried in sediment up to their necks, up to their chins, up to their necks, somewhere along there, up to their shoulders. And various moai were, various moai weigh various amounts. So you have some that are relatively small, but the average moai is maybe... In the um, uh, 20, 30-ton range, something like that, there's erected moai that are up to maybe 70 to 80 tons, and huh. there are some moai in the quarry that were never completed. There's a very large one that's been estimated to weigh, if it had been completed, a quarter million tons or so. Um, not quarter million tons, quarter million pounds, uh, 250 uh, tons or so. Uh, I'm thinking metric, but uh, about 200 kilograms actually. That's incredible. But but incredible, incredible. Yeah, incredible uh, size and weight. So I mean, what they were doing was incredible, and what they had plans to do was even more incredible. If they had not, um, if they had completed the largest moai that are still lying in the quarry, half finished or you know partially finished. But, you know, even moving around, you know, 20-ton moises is, is no insignificant feat.
0: How do they move them?
1: That's, that's a good question. I mean, the traditional view is, there's two traditional views now. One is that they cut down all the trees on the island and were rolling them around sort of on rollers. Mm. And the trees on the island were, um, you know, decimated. Uh one one belief is that the island had a lot of trees initially that they were making these moai they were cutting down the trees like crazy to move them around and they basically caused the extinction of most of the trees on the on the island. Another theory is that they were walking them and what that refers to specifically is they were essentially taking large poles against wooden poles and putting them in slings, putting the moai in slings vertically. Think of a uh, sort of under the chin, putting a sling under the chin, propping up vertically, mm-hmm. and then holding it up with poles and sort of pivoting the poles and the moai back and forth so it would, quote, walk and moving it that way.
0: What distance between the quarry and the locations where the moais are, are, are erected?
1: Oh, the distances? Yeah. I mean, the whole island is fairly small, but, you know, you're talking miles and miles. Um, you know, not tens of miles because the island is not that big, but miles. Um, you know, number of miles in many cases. So, I mean, yeah, yeah this is... it's, And I want to say, if people that have not been to Easter Island, the terrain of Easter Island is fairly rough in many areas. It is a volcanic island. Walking in some areas, if you're not careful and you were not wearing sturdy shoes, that type of thing, you can cut your feet on natural glass shards, natural volcanic glass. So it's not the most, um, you know, the softest, uh, easiest terrain to move things around on either.
0: And from Santiago, which I think it's at, that's where you uh, you uh, departed from, Santiago to Easter Island. Is that about five-hour flight?
1: Yeah, it's about five hours. You can actually go. I've done both, Santiago and Lima. Uh, you can fly from Santiago to Easter Island, or you can fly from Lima, Peru, to Easter Island. The, it used to be it was only from Santiago. Now you can fly from Lima also to Easter Island. So... They are opening it up more and more to people visiting Easter Island and talking to some of the Rapa Nui. They're known as Rapa Nui. Another name for Easter Island is Rapa Nui. That's sort of the native name.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the Rapa Nui, the native Rapa Nui, have mixed feelings. I mean, on the one hand, they like the tourism. They like the money coming in. But on the other hand, it's a very small little island and, you know, on a small microcosm like that it's easy to damage things easy to overpopulate pollute and this is one of the um issues about Easter Island that's you know been ongoing
0: what's the population these days in Easter Island
1: uh i want to say between 3 and 4000 or so yeah, it it varies of course because people come and go and even people that quote live on Easter Island, some of them that can afford it, they also have uh places, for instance, maybe in Santiago or Hawaii, you know, so sort of more than one some of them have more than one residence, other people of course live um solely on Easter Island. And then, you know, the population varies greatly with the number of visitors.
0: And do you have the usual creature comforts? Do you have hotels, roads, uh, internet? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very comfortable. There's nice hotels. There's um, uh, a few roads along the island. You can't get to some parts of the island on road. You have to just drive as far as you can and then hike in, especially in the northern part of the island. But, yeah, it's a very beautiful island. It sort of gives you the sense of a Polynesian island overall. And, um, you know, nice weather. Most of the time it can rain there. I've been there when it was raining pretty hard. Uh, but it it always seemed to, like, come and go very quickly, you know, sort of a uh, uh, rain burst, and then it would clear up very quickly again.
0: And the you also saw some low, thick stone houses that, that resemble bunkers or, or fallout shelters. Yes,
1: yes. So we have on Easter Island these stone houses— that look for all the world-like bunkers or fallout shelters. I mean, they're made of slabs of stone. They have very narrow entrances. They have thick, thick walls. We're talking three feet or more thick. They're very small and cramped inside. They actually make little sense uh, from a practical point of view. I mean, you don't need thick stone houses like that. They're usually referred to as houses you don't need that in a you know tropical environment in easter island they're very very strange and i believe that it ties in with my theory which i believe you know what i've been working on ties a lot of things together that there was a major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age and several actually probably series of them and a fallout shelter i'll call it that for lack of a better term would serve the purpose of protecting people from a major solar outburst, a major plasma event, a major coronal mass ejection, You know, basically electrical discharges making its way down to the surface of the Earth and the radiation that would be associated with that. Paula Violetta has done a lot of good work. People may be aware of it that if you had a major solar outburst, orders of magnitude higher than anything that we know about or that we've experienced in recent centuries, you would have raised, for instance, radiation levels. You could have major electrical discharges on the surface of the Earth. And there's two good ways to protect yourself. One is going into natural caves and or artificial caves. The other would be very thick Stone building shelters like this, and I think that that's might might be what we see on Easter Island. Now I want to say that maybe these were built after a catastrophe, in case another one would occur. I'm not saying they were necessarily built as it was occurring. There are also on Easter Island a number of natural caves, a number of places where uh, people could escape such an onslaught from a solar outburst. And it's known that these caves were heavily used on Easter Island. Uh, it's a volcanic island. There are numerous lava tubes where those lava tubes geologically essentially natural caves uh, in the lava and it's been known for a long time that people have lived there, that people have inhabited that. When I was on Easter Island just last week I was speaking with um, one of the people who's grown up there, has lived there all his life, has a long, you know, he's a native Easter Islander, and that's his heritage. And he was talking about one tradition that people went underground into these cave systems and stayed there for, they said, a thousand years, which essentially means a very long time before re-emerging, uh, because things were, you know, not, not good on the surface. So again, that's a legend, but I think it ties in uh, with my, what may have actually been happening geologically. And I think these weird stone houses ties in with that too. I want to comment on them also. They are not mortared. They're just slabs of stone piled up. Some people conventionally will call it conventional archaeologists. They talk about these stone houses were to protect them from their enemies. Well, it makes no sense to me because they're very small. If you were trying to hide from your enemy, it's a pretty obvious place to hide, and your enemy could just block you in and starve you to death.
0: That's right.
1: And or they could just peel the stones off. They're easily taken apart if you wanted to get to the person inside. It makes no sense. Uh, they might have been used for other things like sweat lodges, that type of thing, but I don't see that as incompatible. If you've got the building anyway— Uh, say, your fallout shelter, your bunker, you know, you're going to put it to other uses periodically while you're, you know, when a cataclysm is not occurring.
0: I recently found out, and we're going to talk about Göbekli Tepe in a few minutes, but in Turkey, not Göbekli Tepe, but I heard that they had found some underground... There we say not cities, but underground locations where they could actually fit thousands and thousands of people. Obviously, oh, yeah. the, these civilizations knew that these events happen uh, at certain intervals. Do you think that they, they, they were more in touch with, with astronomy and astrology to determine the future?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I think when you look at ancient cultures, ancient civilizations, ancient legends around the world... Uh, people were in touch with the larger cycles of time, the larger cycles of nature. I think we see glimmerings of that personally in a number of ancient we'll call it, i don't want to call it legends i want to, because it's more than just legends or more than just myths but ancient concepts so for instance, you have the Mayan concept of the world ages and the changing over the world ages, and a lot of people. Talk about that now because we're coming up on December 21st, the solstice, 2012, when there's a turnover. And actually, this correlates with heavy activity in the sun at the moment. I mean, very heavy activity compared to the last 8,000-plus years, but that's something we can get into. But you have, for instance, the Mayan concept, and that has a cycle, a periodicity of about several periodicities. One is about 5,125 years, one double that, so 10,000 plus years. And this, I believe, and I talk about it in Forgotten Civilization, matches periodicities, natural cycles and periodicities we see in the geological work, geological record, and the astrophysical record. Mention some others. You have, for instance, the Yuga cycle, the Hindu Yuga cycle of... um the, what in English we might call the golden, silver, bronze, and iron ages of going through different cycles, different periods of time. These are separated by major catastrophes classically. And I think that's reflected here again. Or the processional cycle going through the major ages. We're in the age of Pisces now. We had come out of the age of Aquarius. I'm sorry, we came out of the age of Aries previously. We went to the age of Pisces. We're going into the age Aquarius. of Aquarius. Yeah. But I think this all ties together that the ancients had a very good concept of long times, long durations, long-term cycles. And we as modern humans generally don't have that concept. In fact, society as a whole thinks that if it's been a certain way for a hundred years, it's going to be that way forever. And that's just absolute nonsense, whether you're looking at it historically or geologically or astrophysically. Uh, I know as a geologist, Earth has undergone major, major changes, and not just millions of years ago, but even you know 10,000 years ago and even just a few thousand years ago. We've had major changes in climate, major changes in, um, In, for instance, the level volcanic activity, earthquake activity, that type of thing. So, yes, that's something very much, I think, that the ancients were attuned to and we have lost.
0: And in preparation for this interview, I was doing some research outside of your your area of expertise to see if I could tie it together, and I found something very interesting, Professor. Mm -hmm. The Mayan calendar restarts every 5,126 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's why I was mentioning, that cycle, exactly.
0: Yeah, and the Earth passes a galactic equator every 25,630 years, which is a perfect multiplier.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think a lot of these cycles, you multiply them, and that's also approximately a processional cycle, um, etc. Yeah, so I think that um, they were very attuned to these larger term cycles that we have lost track of. I think, for instance, and I talk about this, as you know, in Forgotten Civilization, mm-hmm. the sun went underwent major changes, major solar outbursts, major disequilibrium at the end of the last ice age, which geologically, I believe, is best dated to 9700 B.C. People will say 97 to say 9500 B.C. That is just under 12,000 years ago. And I think that correlates with a number of these cycles, too, that this periodicity, and I believe in the sun, we have that periodicity of, you know, 10 to 12,000 years or so. And that's a natural cycle we should not be ignoring. I also wanted to mention while I'm thinking about it, Atlantis and Plato's concept of Atlantis. And this, I believe, ties into that you have major civilization, you have sophisticated civilization, and you have declines. And again, Plato considers this uh, cyclical and ties in with natural events. And when you read Plato and take him literally at face value, which I think you need to take to a certain extent, the timing of Atlantis, according to Plato, when you convert it, To the modern calendar, it's about 9600 B.C., and that is incredibly close. I don't think that's just coincidence. It's incredibly close to the modern dating for the end of the last ice age, which was catastrophic. Um, The last ice age ended catastrophically within just a couple of years, maybe literally overnight with a major solar outburst.
0: You know I keep scratching my my head, Professor, because you you keep mentioning these dates, which coincide with some of the mathematical calculations that I made yesterday, mm-hmm. you know, for example uh, an ice age happens every what what, what is it every uh five thousand one hundred and twenty six years times two, and right. then we see that the Earth enters a new ice a new age approximately every one hundred thousand years, but if you multiply twenty five thousand six hundred and thirty times four. We uh-huh. get, and I don't mean to b- bore people with, with with figures, but every 102,520 or every four times the Earth passes the galactic equator. Now, the question is, is it possible? And I don't mean to put fear because this show is, is, is airing exactly two weeks before December 21st. Is it possible that all these events are occurring at the same time on December 21st, 2012? And if a new Ice Age starts, the Earth may stop and rotate in the Opposite direction, putting us under nuclear winter, creating a new ice age? Is this possible?
1: Yeah, I don't know if you're asking me. I mean, I i don't know. Uh, uh, what I would say is that, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything's impossible, but I do think that we're in a situation where we have to take seriously that uh, we could live in turbulent times, if I could put it that way. Uh, and this has nothing, I'm not talking politically, I'm not talking From a human perspective, I'm talking from a natural perspective of these cycles and and what um, could be just on the horizon, what could be right around the corner.
0: And by the way, there's also the stories about giants inhabiting the the island in past times. Did you study that as well?
1: Oh, yes. uh, Easter Island. Yeah, Yeah, Easter Island. There are definitely stories of giants on the island, uh Some of the people that first were on Easter Island, uh one of the narrators, one of the witnesses who was with the Dutch, with Jacob Roggeveen, on the island initially, he described in no uncertain terms, I believe in no uncertain terms, that there were men who were 12 feet tall and there were women who were 10 feet tall. Some people have dismissed this and they say, Oh, they were just seeing the Moai from a distance and they thought mm. they were giants. No, I think it's pretty clear he was seeing real people. You know, he was on the island. He wasn't talking about uh statues. And when I spoke with people on the island on one of my trips to Easter Island, uh several people from the island they confirmed that they had seen, now I have not witnessed this personally but they said they had seen in caves, they had seen burials, very, very large human bones. And they swore to their best knowledge that they were human bones, they weren't cow bones or something like that. One described what he, essentially, as I could understand, was a human femur, the leg bone that was much larger than, um, uh, you know, typical leg bone. ...that you would have of a normal-sized male today. I'm a bit over six feet tall, and he assured me it was much larger than mine. So that's a distinct possibility. I want to add in there that modern scientists, and I'm a scientist, so but I'm saying many of my colleagues will be very quick to dismiss such things as um, nonsense, as you know, legends, that people are just trying to impress other people, that they don't have any kind of real truth to them. I want to point out that the Dutch explorers in the other part of the world, in Indonesia, what is now modern Indonesia... They described, they brought back stories of very, very small people, very short-statured people that they said they heard about in the 18th and 19th centuries, that there were these little race of people that would live up in the um, uh, hinterlands, up in the centers of these uh islands of Indonesia, you know, very remote they would come down sometimes to the villages and steal food and steal other things, even steal babies, and this was dismissed, you know, classically as just nonsense, just uh, wives' tales, just nonsense. Recently I want to point out they have found a brand new species of human, fossil human. This was in 2006 I believe it was first technically described, known as Homo floresiensis after yep. the island of Flores. And for all the world, this is absolutely, I'm a paleontologist among other things. I've studied the literature on it. I've studied casts of the fossils, very good scientifically accurate casts of it. I'm convinced, like many other scientists are, that this was a distinct species of humans that were little they were very very small maybe three three and a half feet tall as adults very small-headed very small-brained which doesn't mean they were stupid they just had small brains right. They're sometimes known popularly as hobbits and they fit for all the world the description that the dutch gave and the fossils from a geologic point of view are very recent they come from the end of the last ice age And serious researchers have suggested that, in fact, maybe this species existed right up into the 19th century. Maybe, and this is a stretch, some people would say, but maybe on some of these very remote islands of Indonesia, this species, another species of humans, exists to this day. We just don't know. My point being that, I think you have to take a lot of these stories seriously, and if the Dutch say they saw giants on Easter Island, 12-foot people, um, 10-foot females, 12-foot males on Easter Island, I'm not willing at this point to simply dismiss that as nonsense.
0: And we keep discovering the the, the Homo floresiensis, uh, they were what, discovered in 2003?
1: Yeah, 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 about 2003 and described, you know, early, you know, 10 years ago, say,
0: yeah. And we have these giants. I have uh, one of our listeners whose father lives in, in southern Iran, professor. And uh-huh. a few years ago, he sent me some pictures after an earthquake. Uh-huh. Apparently, an ancient area was uncovered after a, an earthquake in southern Iran. And he sent me some pictures of female giants that for the first time we're uncovered in that area. So we have all these cultures around the world I keep talking about giants, yet yeah. Western civilization says it's, that's just legend.
1: Yeah, what, you have these legends. You have these legends around the world of um, giants. And, you know, something I've found in among other things, not to throw out credentials, but I have a PhD in geology and geophysics. I also have a, a degree an undergraduate degree in anthropology, and I've studied ethnography, that type of thing. And my feeling is when you have consistent legends around the world of certain things, and they're independent of each other, uh, and they have consistent details, and we find that with things like stories of giants, stories of floods, etc., I think you have to give them some credence. You have to say, well, maybe there really was a factual
0: basis for this. What do you think happened to the, the Homo florescensis and the giants?
1: Oh, I think that what you had was you had major dramatic changes at the end of the last ice age. This ties in with one of the other themes we've already touched on, and I discuss in Forgotten Civilization. At the end of the last ice age, just before the end, we had a very different climate on the Earth overall. Uh, we had... You know, much more extensive glaciation at high latitudes. Not the entire world was not covered with glaciers. Sometimes people think that. No, that's not the case. But you had uh, continental glaciers in, you know, northern Europe, that type of thing. You had much more extensive glaciation. This affected world climates. You had overall cooler climate. It meant some places that are now desert, which were much more temperate. And this all ended very, very quickly. We now know that the end of the last ice ice age came to a sudden end about 9700 BC. There was a dramatic warming based on ice cores, based on sediment cores, based on isotope data. The best evidence is that this dramatic warming occurred within one to three years or so, maybe literally, literally overnight because we don't have enough data we don't have fine enough data to resolve it down below, you know, few years. So what looks like it could be a few years in the geological record could literally be, you know, a snap of the fingers. And I believe that that was a major major solar outburst. When I say major solar outburst, you would have had what technically known as a is known as a proton event, a coronal mass ejection, which means that the Sun would have spewed out a big ball of essentially electrically charged particles. This could hit the Earth, and at that time I believe did hit the Earth, caused massive di- disruption to the magnetosphere, would be driven down to Earth. Certain areas literally would have had essentially... It would have looked like huge lightning bolts hitting the Earth to the point where in some cases, not everywhere on Earth, but some cases, you could have even vitrification. Rocks on the surface, the very surface rocks, you know, I'm talking in the top centimeter, so could melt and re-solidify very, very quickly. We have actually have evidence of that from some archaeological sites now at the end of the last ice age. Um, Just to make sure people understand, it's not that this would occur everywhere at once on the surface of the Earth. It would be more like a tornado. If you think of a tornado, it will hit some spots, but not other spots, and very hard to predict. But major changes like that, and also this overall would have caused dramatic temperature warming, And it would have melted the glaciers very, very quickly. I mean, sort of snap your fingers and they'd be gone from a geological perspective. Also, these huge electrical storms, we could call them, huge electrical discharges, would in some cases not only set forest fires, set fires, incinerate things on the surface of the earth in some places, cause vitrification, but they would also evaporate water as well as melting ice. So you would get... Huge amounts of water in the atmosphere. The atmosphere can only hold so much water, so it would come down as torrential rains. And we have, of course, legends around the world from, I believe, dating back to this period of torrential rains, flooding, flash floods, that type of thing. So, very, um, you know, very um, cataclysmic, um, disastrous time. And I believe in many cases this wiped out early civilizations, early cultures of the time may have caused things like some of these giants, if they existed, uh, the Homo floresiensis, it may have wiped them out, caused them to go extinct or close to extinction if a few did hang on later, would have destroyed incipient or early civilizations of the time like Gebekli Tepe in Turkey which spans the end of the last ice age and then disappears. We can talk about that perhaps. So a lot of things going on at the uh, very end of the last ice age geologically and there's no doubt in my mind that this had a real impact on human cultures, human civilizations, people of the time.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this excellent interview with Dr. Robert Schock. You can learn more about Dr. Schock and purchase his books, including his latest one, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts, in our past and future, and many others, by visiting his website at robertschock.com. To listen to segment two, head over to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe button. We'll take a break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more with professor robert shock enjoy Whoa.
1: This is William Dean A. Garner, and you are listening to
0: Veritas.